Please turn in your Bibles to John's Gospel. So far in John's Gospel, we've seen two signs. We've seen Jesus turn water into wine at the wedding in Cana, and we've seen his very dramatic cleansing of the temple there in Jerusalem. And so these signs were demonstrations of power, but not for power's sake. They were signs with the express purpose of getting people to see who Jesus is and ultimately to believe in Jesus. And we've already seen instances of the signs having their desired effect, of people believing, especially his disciples. And we've also seen some not understand the signs, some miss the signs entirely and not believe. And this morning, John's going to throw a wrinkle in all of that. We're going to see this morning that the importance isn't simply, do you believe in Jesus? But does Jesus believe in you? I just want to ask you to stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word. And we're bridging two chapters here. We're at the very end of chapter 2 and the first eight verses of chapter 3. So we pick up in John 2, 23. This is God's word. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. May God bless the teaching and the preaching of his inspired, infallible, inerrant, and authoritative word. We've already prayed for his guidance and help, so please be seated. Now, I usually don't plow straight through the verses in order in a sermon. I I tend to prefer to look at the bigger themes that are involved and, and to give you an outline sort of centered around those themes. But this morning... Uh, I think it's probably best if we just do plow straight verse by verse through this. All the while, considering this question, does Jesus believe in you? What What would lead or cause Jesus to believe in you? Why is that the more important question to ask than do you believe in Jesus? And so we start in 23, verse 23 of chapter 2. It would seem that these signs that Jesus is doing, well, they're just a huge success, aren't they? 
right? People are believing. Many people are believing, and this is wonderful. That is, after all, the goal, right? To get people to believe in Jesus. That has to be Jesus' mission. It's very often our goal and mission in evangelism, right? We want to get people believing in Jesus. And that seems about right, but... And that's what comes next in verse 24. Many people believed, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. Now what do we make of this? Jesus didn't entrust himself to them. What does that mean? Well, it helps to know that entrust in verse 24 and believed back in verse 23 same verb so many believed in Jesus but Jesus didn't believe in them hmm. our English translations usually say something like entrust translating that verb in 24 trying to differentiate, trying to help us see a little bit of a difference here between the people's believing in Jesus and Jesus not <laughs> believing in them, right? I, I think what John is trying to communicate here is that Jesus didn't believe in their belief in him. He didn't trust it. He didn't believe they were believing in a way that made them true disciples of his. Right? Many believed, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. Now, why is this? What is it about their belief that Jesus finds lacking? We can, we can safely speculate just a bit why their belief was inadequate. Right? Number one, having a miraculous sign lead folks to believe is a bit of a mixed blessing. Right? It's great that it prompts belief, but it's quite possible and a little dangerous that the belief will then be in the miracle, in the sign itself, rather than in the one that it points to. It's, oh, I've seen this amazing thing. And at the end of the day, it's the amazing thing that your faith rests in. It's not in the one that that amazing thing was supposed to point you to. Another possibility that Calvin suggests, once they see the rest of what Jesus has to say and what he demands and expects from them, and when they find that that contradicts their desires and their plans, well, they're going to hit the road. And you see it happen, right, again and again. Perhaps it's that their intellect has been stirred but their heart's affections have not been roused. Lots of things we could theorize, but whatever it was, whatever it was that made their faith, made their belief inadequate, Jesus knew what it was. He knew. Look at the end of verse 24 and then the whole of 25. He knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. He knew. He had this divine knowledge. You're not hiding anything from Jesus. 
He knows what's in your heart. He knows what you're after. He knows what you're here for. And we're going to see many instances, in John's Gospel especially, of Jesus encountering people and knowing exactly what they're thinking, what they've done, who they are, the real question behind the question that they're asking. Right? He, he knows all. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And he doesn't need anyone to inform him about it. Right? He doesn't need any witness about it. He just knows. Now, I'm sure you know this, but let me just remind you. Chapter and verse divisions in our copies of God's Word, those weren't in the original. Right? Those were added much later as convenience to help us find stuff. Right? So they're helpful, but it's not as if John was writing his gospel and he was thinking, okay, now I'm finishing up chapter 2. Turn the page. Let me start chapter 3. That, that was not in John's mind. In, in John's mind, he was saying, Jesus knew what was in man, and in the very next breath, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. Chapter 3, verse 1. These things are connected. As if to say, hey, you want an example of Jesus knowing what was in man without being told? You want an example, perhaps, of someone who had some type of belief, but that I'm not entrusting myself to. There was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. In fact, a leader among the leaders of the religious Jews, verse 2. And this man came to Jesus by night. Now, there's a lot that can be said about night. Calvin said something great about his, his eyes being dazzled too much with his position and his power. Right? And he wouldn't dare risk that by coming in the light of day, so he comes at night. Um, anytime that John uses night in his gospel, it always has to do uh, with some element of either moral or spiritual darkness. And in this case, this darkness is a, it's a lack of understanding. So he comes to Jesus at night, and he says to him, Rabbi, right? which is somewhat of an honor for him to extend, because Jesus didn't have any formal rabbinical training. Right? So for Nicodemus to, to call him Rabbi, that's uh, certainly more respectful than some of the other Jews, uh, Jews and Jewish leaders are, are treating Jesus. And that continues in his little thing about, well, we know that you're a teacher come from God. No one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Granted, we'll give you that. And so Nicodemus and perhaps others in his circle of influence, hence the we, he says we know, we, um, they've seen the signs. They've drawn some conclusions. Not just anybody can do these things that he's doing. There's got to be something special about him. And so his statement that, well, clearly you're a teacher, seems to imply a question. <laughs> are you more? Uh, you're a teacher, but are you also something else that we should know? Uh, are you a prophet? Could, could you be? The? <laughs> See, we need to know these things, Nicodemus is trying to get at. We need to figure you out to see if you're worth listening to, to see if you're worth 
following. He's trying to size Jesus up. Do a cost-benefit analysis here. Should I involve myself with this Jesus character? And can I tell you, I think that's what John is getting at back in verse 24. About not entrusting himself to them, not believing in them. And, And we have the very same problem today. We think, Nicodemus thinks, he's going to decide if he wants to establish a relationship with Jesus. He thinks that the movement is from us to Jesus. We'll take a look at you and and we'll decide. If, If you check all the boxes for us, then perhaps we'll decide to follow you. Right? We sing about it. I have decided to follow. Um, well, guess what? Jesus doesn't believe in that. He doesn't seem to care what we claim to know about him. See that a little bit in, in verse 2 of chapter 3. Nicodemus seems a little cocky as you read it. We know. We know you're a teacher. We know you come from God. So Nick says, we know. And Jesus responds and says, let me tell you something. That's my paraphrase. I think the original was, verily, verily, I say unto thee. But see, Jesus cuts through all the layers of Nicodemus' curiosity right to the heart of the matter. You know, but let me tell you this, you can't see. You cannot see unless you're born again. Look at verse 3. Truly, truly, let me grab you by the shoulders. That's what those words mean. Let me grab you by the shoulders, make sure I've got your attention. I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, you're you're trying to figure things out, and that's good, but it's never going to happen unless you're born again. And this had to just slam on the brakes for Nicodemus and say, what? No, 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 no. I'm trying to figure you out. And you're turning the tables and talking about me? And that I need to be born a, a second time? Your, your born again there might have a little footnote, an asterisk or something, um, that there's another option there. It, that word could mean born again, or that word could mean born from above. And so here's another great example of John, I think, purposefully picking a word that he knows has two meanings because John means them both. Nicodemus certainly understands it to mean again because he asks this rather crass and very literal question in verse 4. Right? How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? And he He just clearly does not get it. He's too shocked and I think too offended to get it, right? I'm an elite 
I'm a leader among the leaders of the religious leaders. And you're telling me I can't see the kingdom? Which he understands to mean to be in the kingdom, to have eternal life, to experience resurrection life at the end of the age. You're telling me I don't see that? I don't get that? And that's exactly what Jesus is telling Nicodemus and telling us all without exception. Nicodemus had quite a resume, quite a list of accomplishments. He was a man of great knowledge, power, position. He was certainly a very moral man. And if not even he can see God's kingdom, how can anyone? And Jesus presses further in verse 5 truly truly shoulder shaking i say to you unless one is born of water and the spirit he cannot enter the kingdom of god so verse 3 you can't see the kingdom verse 5 you can't enter the kingdom unless you're born verse 3 again verse 5 of water and the spirit now folks have used up a lot of ink and a lot of paper, and a lot of time talking about what this water is referring to in verse 5. Born of water and the Spirit. And many thanks to our adult Sunday school class who helped me with this this morning. We studied, we applied our Bible study method to this verse, trying to seek to figure out what's going on here. And so lots of folks want to tie this water in this verse to baptism. Right, to, to water baptism. Oh, this is what's going on here. Well, not exactly. I can't go into all the details of that. You would have had to be in that Bible study in Sunday school with us. Holding out on you, I know. Some folks would even want to say, and I've heard this before, right? Oh, well, the water there must refer to natural birth, like amniotic fluid when a woman's water breaks in childbirth. Nope, not that either. Um, our clue to what this actually means comes a couple verses after our passage. We'll get into them next week, but I'll give you just this verse now. It's verse 10. Because Nicodemus is, is chiding, uh, Jesus is chiding Nicodemus for not understanding what he's talking about. Right? He says in verse 10, Are you the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? So whatever is Jesus is talking about, about being born again, about being born of water and of the Spirit, is something that Nicodemus should at least have some grasp of, some facility with, because he's a teacher of the Scriptures. And at that point, all the Scriptures that they had then was the Old Testament. Right? So if we're going to rightly understand born of water and of the Spirit, our understanding is very likely going to come from what Nicodemus would have had access to, and that's the Old Testament Scriptures. And wouldn't you know it, there's a wonderful little place in Ezekiel, one that I've taken you to at least a dozen times, here it is again, that gives us a little glimpse of water and the Spirit at work. And it's Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 27. You ought to have them memorized by now. I will sprinkle clean water on you, there's the water, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. 
And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is a picture of the new birth. This is a picture of what it means to be born again. I think this is what Jesus is getting at with Nicodemus. You've got to be born again. If you're going to see and enter God's kingdom, you've got to have your sin dealt with. You need to be cleansed. You've got to have a new heart. You need my spirit inside of you. This is what Nicodemus should have picked up on, but he didn't. And instead, he is shocked and offended by what Jesus is saying. Because Jesus is saying, look, something big has got to change with you before you're going to be fit for God's kingdom. You're not okay as you are. And that's shocking because the widely held teaching and belief of the day was that all good Jews go to heaven. So long as you're not an atheist and so long as you've not done one of the big ones, Right? You've not robbed a bank, stolen a camel, cheated on your spouse, murdered anyone, then you're good. And you know, that's the, that's the same thing 90% of the population believes today. As long as we try our best, a loving God will he'll surely let us in. of folks believe that. Some of you sitting in this room believe that. (gasps) I know because when someone dies, the things you pick up on at a visitation and after a funeral, right? that's when we say what we really believe is when someone close to us has passed away. And then all the talk of, oh, they lived such a good life comes out. Oh, what a good person they were. People say all types of things that Nicodemus would have very much agreed with. But verse 6 prevents that view with a really big problem. Something you never hear folks say at a funeral or at a visitation. What's born of the flesh is flesh. What's born of the spirit is spirit. See, if all you have is that first birth, well then, congratulations, you're a human. And you belong to this world. Fallen, corrupted, condemned world that we live in with your sinful flesh but if your desire is for another world for for another kingdom the first thing you've got to realize is it's a spiritual kingdom and it takes new eyes and a new heart to see it to believe it to enter it you must be born again you must be born from above i think Jesus knew that Nicodemus' mind must just be spinning with all of this. 
And so in verse 7 he says, don't marvel. Right? Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Now, I think there's a few things here, what he means by don't marvel. Number one, you shouldn't be shocked. You should have been able to piece some semblance of this from the scriptures, right? So don't be shocked that you need to be born again. You should have picked up on the fact that a big transformation was needed to be ready and fit for God's kingdom. That's all over the Old Testament. But also, don't try to figure it out or think you can somehow control it. This isn't something you're in charge of. It's not something you ask for. It's something that happens to you. You're you're a passive recipient in this process. Because look at how he explains it in verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit's work. And he's like the wind. You see the effects of the wind. You see that tree lying on the ground over there. And you know it's lying on the ground because the wind did it. And you know the wind must have come from that direction because the tree went that way. And that's about the extent of what you know. You can't make the wind blow or not blow. We looked at this this morning again in Sunday school, so we're not going to turn there. Um, What comes right after Ezekiel 36 is Ezekiel 37. In this valley of dry bones. You should turn there. You should look at that this afternoon. You should spend a little time there with both of those chapters and with this passage that we've looked at today. Because some of you are probably marveling right now. Some of your heads might be spinning. Some of you might be shocked, perhaps, to hear that your resume isn't enough. Some trying to wrap your minds around the idea that you always thought your believing in Jesus was the big idea. You always thought that you believing in Jesus was the point and the, the big thing that needed to happen. Maybe you've never considered whether or not Jesus believes in you. Those things I, I do hope you marvel at and ponder a bit. Now, we'll find next week Jesus has more to say to Nicodemus. And so I'm not going to try to put it in a nice little box and put a bow on it for you this morning. I'm okay if you wrestle with it for a while, if it's a little unsettling. Let me just summarize a bit to draw us to an end. Just because you say you believe in Jesus doesn't mean Jesus automatically accepts that belief. Ouch! Is that as uncomfortable to hear as it is to say? Does that make you squirm a little bit? 
Nicodemus is an example of one who had some type of belief that Jesus wasn't accepting. He didn't accept it because it didn't come from a new man with a new heart, with God's spirit inside of him. Nicodemus would first have to be changed and transformed. You and I first have to be changed and transformed. We have to be renewed. We have to be born again before our believing in Jesus will warrant his belief in us. Let's pray. Father, that is a bit unsettling to say. I know it's unsettling to hear, but it comes from your word. It comes from your lips, Jesus. We've got to be born again. And so, Lord, that's the ultimate thing that we pray for this morning. Not that we would try to get people to believe in Jesus, but that you would be about gathering those who through the power of your Spirit, you've enabled to believe in Jesus with true saving faith. This is your work. This is your doing. And so, Lord, our prayer is, would you do it? For those in our midst this morning, would you do it? For our friends and our family that don't know you, would you do it? Holy Spirit, would you act? Use us in the process. Use us as your ambassadors, as your mouthpieces, as ones to bring the good news of the gospel. And would your spirit accompany that with power to remove hearts, to replace hearts, to implant your spirit? Would you do this? For your glory, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Would you please?